Is it on? Are you? Are we okay? Or were you lying? Was I lying? Someone lied. Yeah, I think it's good. Cool. So many, so many, so many damn books. So, uh, welcome to this episode of uh, So Many Damn Books. I'm Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Lev Grossman here in the damn library with us. Uh, Lev Grossman is the author of uh, Warp and Codex and the Magician's Trilogy. And he's also the technology writer and book critic for Time Magazine. Thank you so much for joining us, Lev. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, welcome. And uh, so we always start the show, or we always do. We've done this one week <laughs> now, and we're going to do it again it, with the... With what'd you buy? What did you buy uh, this week, Drew? Um, I just bought the Familiar Volume One, a rainy d- one one rainy day in May, the new Mark Danieleski, uh first of twenty seven volume. Right, uh, the the master of ergodic fiction. Wow, what a weird word. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's uh, for those. I, I I wrote a thing once about ergodic fiction, which is fiction that requires action from the reader so if you need to like take the book and read it in a mirror or something or that like hi- reading hieroglyphs is an also a really good ergodic <laughs> Ergon- experience. like it's like erotic with a g yeah <laughs> and a d instead of a t oh right oh sorry yeah yeah, oh. Totally. yeah it's all off erotic uh, with a g yeah it's <laughs> not exciting so many things are erotic with g's uh. <laughs> um yeah and y- have you read any of it yeah it um I'm on board. Yeah. So far, you're, like, gonna, you're gonna read 27 volumes. Yeah. I, I, uh, 13 and a half years from now, I look forward to <laughs> the conclusion, or something. Yeah. <laughs> I read House of Leaves when it came out, um, and it's the last book I can remember reading where I, when I went to bed, I couldn't turn the lights off. <laughs> I had to leave the lights on for a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, did you buy anything this week, Lev, that j- of uh, note? Yeah, that's a good question. Whether I did buy a book, but whether it is of note um, or not is uh, is, um, uh, is sort of questionable. It wasn't it wasn't a work of fiction, and it wasn't new. It was an encyclopedia of um, Arthuriana, King Ooh. Arthur related information. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, it's it is actually super cool. Uh, King Arthur is like a rabbit hole. You start getting interested in him, and like, it goes all the way down. Yeah, <laughs> it's King Arthur all the way down. <laughs> um, yeah, even under the turtles, there's just more King Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Christopher, uh, I bought uh, the Ghost Network by Kate DiSabato. DiSabato, um, and I also went to. Um, Knozsgaard at uh, Powerhouse Arena and bought uh, My Struggle Book 4 and had it signed by him. He's a gigantic man. He's like 6'3 and has huge, huge hands. Mm. Is, uh, uh, I believe that. Yeah. Why? Well, <laughs> it's fat. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's... I'm, I'm very looking forward to... I mean, we're both in multi-volume um, series now, I guess, is what's happening. Yeah. But is Dan Lesky, is that a fake out though, or is he actually going to do more like actual multi volumes? I thought it was maybe going to be a fake out, and then the second book is coming out in October, and again, it's like 800 pages. And in October? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, isn't so it doing three volumes a year or something? I think, or it's, I think they're looking at like two, maybe three. It's like Jeff Vanderveer just opened the floodgates, you know? And yeah. Suddenly, you can do multiple volumes of fiction in one year. Yeah. That's the new rule. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's people think. 
you know, it's the Netflix model of book releasing, yeah. which does that make sense? I don't know. There's also something cool about the you can't like you can catch up and binge it, or it's like bringing back the Dickensian like ah, I'm waiting so much for this next, but knowing that like I only have to wait six months. Yeah. I don't have to wait mm-hmm. h- however many years it might be. Yeah, yeah. Well, some things lead them so lend themselves to serialization though, and some things don't. So it yeah. can't work for everything. That's true. Um, actually, I wanted to bring up uh, the uh, sort of the creation of. I mean, Tim Parks in this conversation with Melville House, um, and, and Tim Car- Parks is the critic for the New York Book Review, right? New York, uh, New York uh, Review, Review of, of Books. books. Yeah. Yes. And he was talking about um, like the book world habit of creating this narrative of discovering a major talent, like, like a, your Ferrante or c- your Knozgaard, and then says, he says, um, this is a quote, everybody's different, but it's quite clear that to become a sort of celebrity critic, you have to be a critic who creates events. And I was wondering if, if you agree with that, Lev, uh, as a critic. Do you, I mean, do you have designs on being a celebrity critic? And, uh, yeah. I don't know if there aren't, is, is, there, is celebrity critic a thing? <laughs> Are there celebrity critics? Uh I mean, Jane, I J- mean James, James Wood. Wood. Is he? Is, is he? Is he a celebrity? If he, he, he might be the only candidate I can think of for a celebrity critic, I guess it, it's what you def- like. For you, I look at you. I'm like, yeah, he's the he's the critic for time. Like, I know your name. I know right. like Machiko Kakatani, James Wood. Like, if you know somebody's name and you're like a reader, I feel like is that celebrity? Yeah, I think that that might be the level of celebrity that Tim Parks is referring to. Right. Um, yeah, well, it's funny. I guess you know, you, having demonstrated the power to make a writer is is definitely you know that's I guess that's one way you can make your bones as yeah. a critic. Um, I certainly remember when I was brought on at time. Uh, it was on a, it was it was on a probationary basis, and um, I didn't. I mean, I'd been reviewing for a few years, but I, I didn't. In terms of being a staff critic, I didn't really know what I was doing, and I was sort of looking for things to do. And my mom had been teaching <laughs> writing at, at UC Irvine for a few years, and she said, "Well, listen, maybe you could just do me a favor. I've got a student who's got a book coming out. I mean, it's you know, it's a small book, and it's been orphaned a couple times because the editor in charge left. But you know, if you could just, I don't know, give it a little bit of a push." Uh, and the book was The Lovely Bones by Alice Siebold. Wow. And so I put it in time, and I interviewed her for for time, and suddenly it was like, hey, kid, you can pick them. Because <laughs> the <laughs> book blew up like crazy and became the biggest book of the year. Um, so that was how I sort of made my bones internally at time, um, is as having just like, you know, the eye. Except it, I didn't really have the eye. I was just really lucky. My mom had the eye. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I've, I've read critiques of Harry Potter, um, and their m- magical system, uh, just as far as talking about critics and critiques. Um, and I wondered, you know, your book, The Magicians, um, you've described it as in conversation with you know, uh, J.K. Rowling and, and C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. And I was curious if the magic in The Magicians is um, in conversation with that criticism or, or do you feel, do you feel, did you feel that while you were creating um, the magic system in the book? There's something of that. Um, there's something of that, definitely. Um, uh, you know, I was, I, was, I was conscious while I was writing it. I was, I was aware, and I don't, I, I don't want to position myself in some sort of adversarial way to Rowling. I'm, 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 a, I'm a J.K. Rowling super fan, 
not just of the Harry Potter books actually, but also Casual Vacancy, which I think Woo! is I think it's an underrated book. I love that. I book. really do. Um, and uh, but I was conscious when I, I was I was aware I knew what A.S. Byant meant when she wrote about Harry Potter and that it was kind of the magic in it was sort of domesticated. It was not wild. Uh, it was domesticated. I I was conscious that magic had become somehow from this crazy thing that Gandalf can do in 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 Middle Earth. I mean, and Gandalf's not even human. If you read the Silmarillion, yeah. he's he's like a you know he's he's some sort of spirit spirit being. Um, to this thing that can be taught to school children. Um, and I thought, well, you know, maybe it has become too domesticated. And I wanted to introduce sort of more difficulty to it, um, more unpredictability to it, uh, more inexplicability to it. Can magic be truly magical anymore if, if, if its behavior is so completely reproducible? Um, does it simply become uh, a slightly weird branch of science? Uh, so, I, you know, I was conscious of talking back to... Um, to I was conscious of talking back to Rowling. I also wanted to get rid of the wands for some reason. Mm-hmm. The wands seemed like, you know, does a real wizard need a wand? It almost seemed like a marital aid or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, it was too phallic, you know. <laughs> just like, just put it down. Put down the wand. I mean, I know some people in Harry Potter can cast without wands. And I always felt like everybody ought to be able to do it if they had to. Yeah, definitely. Um, and this is a good enough time to explain that for those who haven't read The Magicians, it's somewhat, I mean, the the pop description of it is Harry Potter for adults, but it's more than that. It's a it's well, the journey of Quentin. Yeah, and once upon a time, I heard you give a quote, something along the lines of it being just this side of, of copyright infringement of Narnia or something <laughs> like that. Uh, which, but like it's in the way of, of being in conversation with all of these things, and I'm a little bit curious if your work as a reviewer, because you're very widely read, informed the work in your writing just because you are like the characters are conscious of pop culture and they have the breadth of references that all of us have today but you make that feel organic instead of it just being like oh he's he's taking aim at c.s lewis (laughs) there's a sense of you being like well these kids read these books so they would know what happens next well, it was important. It was important to me. I I feel like you know, uh, as much as I love Harry Potter, in some on some level, some of the characters, particularly Hermione, but also but also Harry, um, they don't quite feel like whole people. And the reason that they don't is because they don't read. I feel as though people that I understand uh, that I know, um, and I think people in general, if they don't read, they at least consume fictional stories mm-hmm. uh, on on a on a on a vast scale. We 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 take them in every day. It's part of how how we live our lives and how we figure out who we are, um, and the fact that um, the characters in the magicians, to some extent, constitute who they are uh, and understand the world around them through these fictional stories that they read, principally the Christopher Plummer stories, but they sort of stand in for for books in general. Um, uh, that was important to me, and it was it became it was it was it started out as being a part of. It just seemed realistic. That's I mean, that's what people do all the time. But I began to realize that it was something fundamental about reading itself. Um, it was so fundamental that if I was going to build characters inside a book, those characters themselves would have to read. When I'm reading The Magicians, that is the that's the thing that I I think that I connected to immediately was was that they were readers, and I could uh, for the first time I could actually really see myself inside alongside Quentin. You know, trying. Uh, you know, even more than what house would you be in in Hogwarts? I definitely right. was thinking. You know, what 
would I be a physical kid or would I, you know? And, and I think it's because I could really see myself actually being there. While with Harry Potter, it's, there was a lot more of sort of, this is about something that I could never quite attain. Well, this was, it was that was a, ref, it was partly a, a reflection of, of where I was sort of in my own life. Um, because I'm massively old, I was, was writing, I started writing The Magicians when I was 35. And I was a Harry Potter fan at that point. I mean, Harry Potter was, this was like 2004. So I think we just had Order of the Phoenix. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, you know, I, I, I couldn't help but be increasingly conscious, um, uh, especially when I had a child, of how far away my life was from Harry's. Uh, I felt, so, it was a weird double vision. I felt so deeply identified with these characters and also so conscious of, of being just miles away from them. And not just them, but, but the Pevensies and... Lyra in uh, his Dark Materials, um, and I, you know, to, I, I tried, I, I wrote the magician's part to sort of, I don't know, almost triangulate to s- sort of get a sense of perspective. And wait a minute, you know, my life is like, uh, I, I think of my life as being like the lives of these characters, but actually, it's not at all. Maybe we can find a, a point somewhere in the middle. Mm. Um. So the the fantasy fan base that you've found by writing the magician's trilogy. Do you worry that you, they might not follow you if you if for whatever your next project is if it's not a fantasy based or genre based thing? Um, I I you know I mean I I will worry about that. There will be a time. <laughs> there will be a time for for worrying about that. Um, uh, it's 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 not it's not a th- it's a kind of thing. I mean. Uh, I, like all other writers everywhere, am not a saint. So I, I, w- I always worry at some point about whether somebody will buy my books, whether people will like them, whether people will tweet about them and stuff like that. Um, but, but, you know, that, that, that sort of happens later. I am, you know, I'm sort of fulminating a, a, a new project right now. Actually, I'm in a, at, a, at a great rate at this point. I'm in the sort of peak, peak sort of world building right now. And, 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 um, but I just... Every time I start thinking about that, it, my, the world building stops. I can't think about the two of them at the same time. So uh, I will worry about whether the, whether people will come with, um, but not yet. Mm. Uh, I actually think I think they will. I actually I started something that was miles away from the magicians, and it just ground to a halt. And this is something close enough, but not too close. You just wrote an essay for the Believer. Um, this is a little bit of a of a transition moment, but you you this quote stuck out to me. It was an essay about uh, Leonard Wolf, mm. and you said modernism and fantasy are two very different responses to the same disaster. And I had never thought about fantasy in that context. You know, we think about modernism and the sort of the the breakdown of traditional structures of of novels is like, oh, right, they're responding to the breakdown of the world. Mm. But fantasy as a response to that, I'm incredibly curious, and I'm just wondering if you can say a little bit more about that dichotomy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I ought to be able to, because I'm supposed to give a lecture about this in, in five days. <laughs> <laughs> every, <coughs> every year at Oxford, they have this sort of that annual J.R.R. Tolkien lecture, which I'm supposed to give this year. And, um I should be writing it right now, so maybe we can we can sort of workshop it a little bit. Um, but I do want to. I'm really interested in fantasy and modernism because it took me a long time to notice that all the books, the lo- books that I love most in the world, um, were written at not exactly the same time, but uh, you know within ten fifteen years of each other. And they were the modernists, the work of the modernists, especially 
Wolf, uh, but also Joyce and Hemingway and Fitzgerald um, and Kafka. Um, and then, uh, you know, the, the sort of pioneers of the modern fantasy novel, like Lewis and Tolkien and, and, and T.H. White, they were working at the same time. And I felt as though there must be a, a thread, a common thread among them because I loved them all and because they were working at, at approximately the same moment. Um, and in, the more I thought about it, the more it became clear to me that, um, yeah, they, the, you know, this idea of, modern, of, 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 of the arrival of modernity as a kind of shattering um, of the world, um, uh, you know, including but not restricted to the arrival of mechanized warfare um, with World War I, um, and chlorine gas and all that stuff. Uh, but also, you know, we sort of forget about it, but this is when cities were becoming electrified for the first time. This is when mm. we were, we, horses were being replaced by cars. That happened. Um, <laughs> so, you know, these people lived in a world that resembled in no way the world that they grew up in. Uh, you know, this was the arrival of mass media. Uh, this was psychoanalysis became a thing. Um, you know, advertising. Uh, it, it, you know, the the world is being transformed in 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 not necessarily great ways, and uh, the idea that the modernists were responding to it and that the fantasists were responding to it is 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 um, incontrovertible. They were responding to the same thing, but yeah, I think in opposite ways. I think fantasies, the modernists were trying to think what would it mean to depict a shattered world um, accurately. What would what would a shattered novel look like or a shattered poem? And and the fantasists were thinking, well, what would it be like to, to draw a picture of a whole world? Hmm. What would that look like? And it would look like Narnia or it would look like Middle Earth. Yeah, and I think it's somewhat too that that it's the first time with connection by telephones and, and distances just becoming smaller that that I feel like you could be depicting a whole world or just thinking about the earth as like a continuous thing rather than mm -hmm. it being shattered. It's a strange moment because it's a moment, it's a moment of global, of, on one level, global integration into a whole and on the other hand, um, a, a, a kind of breaking apart, a less literal breaking apart that's harder to describe but that they obviously felt very deeply. The, your comment about a shattered novel I can't think, I mean, the first modernist text that I think comes to anybody's mind is a book, that I think it's safe to say that all three of us like a whole lot, you like a lot, a lot, um, <laughs> is Mrs. Dalloway. So, so Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway, which... Written by Virginia Woolf. Lev, you have said is your favorite book. Yeah, everybody gets forced to answer that question <laughs> once in a while. And I used to sort of say, well... Because you know, there's just a galaxy of marvelous novels in my head all the time. Uh, eventually, I gave up and just started saying Mrs. Dalloway because it's un unquestionably, you know, it, it's always in my rotating top five. It never rotates out. It was a book that I read. I think read it freshman freshman year of college, and um, you know, it, it was the book that took me from um, wow, I really love novels. You know, maybe I should try to write, write one one day to. Um, I have to do this. I have to try this because this, this, this is a this, this, this is it's, it's incredibly important. And B, I feel like I understand something about them. Like I, I look at this book and think, yeah, I can see how the, the different parts work. Um, it was a really and it was a really transformative ex transformative experience reading it. Um, and I have reread it. I don't know how many times since then. Well, uh, for for those of uh, those of our listeners who haven't read it just yet it's basically it's a very short novel it's, a, it's 180 pages is that right yeah i don't even think i don't even think of it as short but 
That is short. Yeah, and it's um, it's a whole day, but it's and short, it's just yeah. one. It's one day in this woman. Um, she's middle aged or at the end of middle age, and she's getting ready for a party, and it follows her uh, mind as well as a few other characters uh, within her day. Sometimes they're actually connected, and sometimes they're just other people on the street that are nearby her. Um, they're but they're all in the galaxy of of Clarissa Dalloway. Yeah. Um. And it's, I mean, it's a strange, strange book. Uh, the The sentence structure is completely, I mean, I think you could probably count the semicolons and it probably has more <laughs> semicolons in a book than I've read in the last like 20 books I've read. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it, I don't know, I, I, was complete, I was completely floored by it. I've never read any of uh, Virginia I was going to say, hey, myself. you ever read this a book? I read first. it in college too. And I didn't, I didn't love it in college. I read it in a class where we were specifically talking about the city in novels. Mm. And in that sense, I loved it. I, I wrote a paper that I still think about and just like the way that the city pushes Peter towards Clarissa's house at the end. And just that was very powerful. But rereading it again recently, I, I was like, what, how stupid was I in college to be <laughs> like, oh, this book's fine. It's incredible. Mm. Um, and I, you mentioned that you've reread it many times. I'm curious if it if it shifts for you, if it changes, if things jump out, if you look at it differently when you reread it now. Right, and do you go in with a question like I, uh, that you're going to answer this huh. time through? No, except, you know, this book can't be possibly be as good as I remember it being, and then it turns out to be like way better. I mean, it's a funny book. I, I, I sometimes think back... Why did I, when I was 18, really recognize myself in this book? It's, it's not about 18-year-olds. Mm -hmm. It's about older people. Uh, <laughs> it's, also, it's also really hard, which I, I was like a lazy and stupid 18-year-old. Um, but somehow, Wolf managed to reach me um, with this complicated book that had a lot of, that has no plot and lots of semicolons in it. <laughs> um, somehow, it penetrated my, my, my freshman year uh, consciousness, um, uh, which is sort of amazing. Um, I, I really love the, the when the book sort of switched from me being sort of studying through it and not quite connecting to it emotionally. Um, but when I did start connecting to it emotionally was the, the sequence where uh, Richard Dalloway is, is realizing that he needs to go home and tell um, Clarissa Dalloway, his wife, that he loves her. Like he's, he's out with Peter. He knows that Peter Walsh is in town, who's Clarissa's former flame. And he's like, OK, I need to go home. And tell her how I feel. And then he's got this whole sequence of going home and thinking about like, wow, this is what happiness is, is going home in this wonderful city. And I'm going to see my wife and tell her I love her. And he buys her flowers. And then he shows up at, and sees her and gives her the flowers and then says like, I don't actually need to say I love you. Like the flowers will do that for me. Never mind. Yeah. And it was sort of, it was a very human like moment of, just a very small um, moment in his life, but she like brought it out and put it under a microscope, which was really, was really fascinating. And I, you know, in genre or in, in plotted things, I feel like you don't have the time to necessarily create those small moments. Do you have strategies as, as a writer to find moments like that or, or spaces like that in your own work? Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, t it's, it's interesting. I, when I, after I read Mrs. Dalloway, I spent, approximately somewhere between 10 and 15 years trying to figure out how to write like Virginia Woolf, <laughs> which was a mistake. Um, <laughs> because if you're not a genius, then you can't write like Virginia Woolf. And 
uh, and I, I eventually I had to give up and start writing fantasy novels instead. But I was very, very conscious of um, I mean, one of the great things about fantasy novels is that they people talk about how they are, um, you know, bound by all these conventions uh, of the fantasy genre, um, uh, which is complete horseshit. It's fantastic. <laughs> it, it's, it's all first of all, literary novels have conventions too by which they are bound. But also, one of the wonderful things about it is when you have conventions, people there are things that people expect to happen. And you can either fulfill those expectations or uh, you can disappoint them or explode them. Um, and, you know, this simple business of, uh, and in fan you know, fantasy, you're kind of expecting in genre, generally speaking, you know, you're expecting more climaxes than anticlimaxes. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 I try to sort of, um, when writing magicians, I want people to enjoy it on the level of a fantasy novel, but I want to make sure, you know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a certain amount of anticlimax there. There are things that you, you think are going to happen that don't happen. You think, you know, people finish the magicians, what was Quentin's discipline? They don't know because he doesn't find out. And in fact, he doesn't find out for, t for two more books um, because, you know, in life you find some things out and some things you don't find out. Uh, there are a lot of things that I that I that I try to sort of I sort of um, you know it's it's like that Dalloway writes uh, sort of Wolf writes and Mrs. Dalloway you're building things up and you're tumbling things down and you build a bunch of things up and then some things you tumble down instead and you never you you, you want to make sure the reader never knows which ones aren't going to be which uh, and I do that to some extent and Wolf does that amazingly mm -hmm. yeah I mean I remember being shocked when I first read it that. You know, I was I was expecting some sort of melodramatic climax involving Septimus and Clarissa, and there was going to be just because that's sort of what I had been trained to understand right, up to right. that point. And then it doesn't happen. Right. You're reading and think, when do they do it? Yeah, <laughs> they're not going to do it. It's never going <laughs> to. It's never going to happen. I mean, I think the first the thing that first alerted me that that the, that the rules had changed when I was reading Mrs. Dalley was uh, it's the scene where where um, Peter. Uh, falls asleep on a park bench. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. Surely this has been done in fiction before, and, and, and I'm sure there are 10,000 examples. I had never seen it done before. Somebody narrating the, uh, a character's consciousness, um, and then you expect it to fade to black um, when they fall asleep, like a sex scene in an old movie. <laughs> um, and, but, but Wolf doesn't stop. She just she 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 lets him get drowsier and drowsier, and then she simply charges across the border into sleep and keeps narrating. You don't even know when it happens because that's how sleep works. I, I thought it was the most stunning thing I'd ever seen. I felt like I was watching a movie and suddenly it flipped into full color 3D, like you know, uh, uh, crazy special effects. Like I just didn't understand that you could do that in fiction. Um, uh, and uh, I don't know if anybody else did it before before Wolf figured it out. It was just astounding. It's like in Ulysses where Bloom goes into the bathroom and takes a shit. And you <laughs> again, you think, I thought they were going to fade to black. <laughs> I enjoyed it more in, in, in Mr. Dalloway than I did in Ulysses, but major respect for both, for both, one, both parties. <laughs> I mean, my, my other sort of takeaway from this book is Septimus, who is just the saddest character, really trying to hold on to sanity and other times... <laughs> running screaming from sanity yeah. and i i guess I, I i was trying to figure out in this in my first reading of this book what is she doing with with having him be the other dominant voice other than clarissa i mean are we are we supposed to be comparing and contrasting their like their sentence structures that their madness and their sanity is sort of similar or i don't know i i was sort of 
uh, puzzled by it. I was curious what you guys thought. I mean, I think it, it's hard for me to look at Septimus and not think about Virginia herself and and the struggles that she went through uh, with depression and mental illness. And that it resonated a lot more with me this this second time that I read it, having grown up a little bit and having like gone through bouts of things like and being like, whoa, hang on. This guy is not just a he's not a counterpoint to Clarissa. He's I don't even know exactly how to describe it. They're both they're both so human. Mm-hmm. Well, they're on, she, they're on the border. I mean, yeah. It, it, I guess like it could be sort of a this is the this is where she could tumble down into Septimus if she's not careful. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, certainly she's she's establishing that there is a continuity between sanity and madness rather than being them being two separate opposed days. Um I I confess that the older I get um, uh, this is a horrible thing to say. I'm going to say it anyway. The less successful a character Septimus seems to me hmm. to be, uh, there's there's an element, and this is, probably comes out of you know my own sort of struggles with depression, which, which I've had. Uh, I, I feel as though there's a level in which Wolf romanticizes mental illness. Uh, you know, when she talks about psychiatrists treating mental illness, uh, she just rants about it. it. It's it's a weird moment where where the kind of perfectly poised sort of uh, uh, narrator's kind of um, aloofness kind of goes away, and right. she just starts spitting venom on on the Harvey Street psychiatrists, um, and it makes me stop and think, wait, this guy's really seriously ill. Like he needs to get to a hospital, like <laughs> yeah. right right away. It's not it's it, it it's it's not beautiful romantic. Um, you know what he's going through on his own with no care whatsoever. Um, he really ought to have a psychiatrist. He shouldn't have a bad one, but but he ought to have one. Yeah, well, was there good psychiatry at the time? Or, or was it just like as much, you know, uh, what's the lithium? Well, <laughs> <you can laughs> yeah. we're, we're 1925. We're well into the, 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 Freudian, the Freudian epoch. Um, uh, Interpretative Dreams was 1900, 1901. Uh, and in fact, I know that Wolf, uh, the Wolfs um, in, with Hogarth Press published Freud. I think they were his first publisher of record in England. Really? So, you know, she was she she understood that 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 Freud and psychoanalysis were a thing. Uh, whether she thought that he was bogus or whether she thought um uh that that, Septim- that that Septimus just wasn't encountering good psychoanalysis um is probably a historical fact that somebody knows. Um but I'd be I'd be curious to know. There's something about the way that the novel does spin through these different these different people and it moves and it captures their emotional state so well but then it does it just like it bounces off into this nanny who's walking by Peter and being like why is that old dude asleep <laughs> and then it comes right back mm. who is that narrator who is who's speaking uh in Mrs. Dalloway it's something that's a, a mystery I always think about when I read it who is that person well I mean I kind of kept thinking about um the Patrick Melrose novels by uh, um, Edward St. Aubin, mm-hmm. where he spends time with, he spends more time in each of those like disparate characters' heads. And it almost like reading Mrs. Dalloway is actually one of these like key novels 
where I feel like now I understand what a bunch of other people were doing. <laughs> huh. yeah. um, and he's one where I feel like he was, he read Mrs. Dalloway and he was frustrated where he was like, I want 50 pages with that person and 50 pages with that person too. So that's what I'm going to do mm. in my, in my work. Yeah. Um, but I think that we'd be remiss to not talk about the, the main sort of uh, love triangle between or I don't know, like love square. If you <laughs> think of like Hugh as being part of it, right? Hugh, yeah. Hugh, Peter, and Richard of of these three men who are all in various degrees love in love with Clarissa, and it was great to kind of be in her mind and then see as we're walking around the party how everyone else sees her, which is sort of frivolous, very charming, very beautiful. I mean, there's something lovely that scene that you mentioned earlier where Richard comes back. And he's unable to say, I love you. And then it flips to her perspective. And she's like, that silly man, I can't believe he did this. I love him so much. He doesn't need to say it. When I read that this time, that I started crying when I read <laughs> that. Just because I was like, oh, that's right. That's what it's like. That's, that's love as a grown Like, that makes sense to me suddenly where it didn't when I was 19 years old. Yeah, and I maybe have that... Have that um expectation too of when you read something like this that the that the maybe maybe this is me growing up on too many bad sitcoms but i (laughs) i assume that richard is going to be awful you know like he's going to be a loudish you know and not deserve her is what i was sort of expecting and then it turns out that he's super thoughtful and charming himself no i i can't think that it would have gone well with with her and peter (laughs) (laughs) I i think she made the right call and it's funny she really dares to um you know she dares to um speak you know uh, uh uh several loves that, that that you know that that are that are unspeakable not mm-hmm. just um between uh Clarissa and Sally um but also Clarissa's like just incredible bourgeois um just love with being upper middle class um <laughs> just you know my beautiful bookshelves, you know, this house that I have, it's so fucking great being here. <laughs> I mean, she's just like a sort of, just a, just a hugely self-satisfied upper middle class white person. Uh, and, you know, she, she uh, Wolf doesn't apologize for it uh, or tiptoe around it. She just lets her just wallow in it. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing thing because um, it's very, very real. I kept forgetting at the beginning how old, Clarissa is supposed to be too mm. because often her voice seems very young. Yeah, there's there's a a point where you realize that, you know, those the flashbacks and the memories of her time with Sally, you're like you haven't you haven't matured all that much right. in the <laughs> intervening years. And and now I really want did I mean did sh- I want like what's that type of novel which written from someone else's perspective? Uh, I yeah. want that for Sally because yeah. she's oh, fascinating. Man. Yeah. I got to call my agent. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really good idea for a novel. Somebody should write it. Somebody (laughs) should definitely write it. Lev, as somebody who, who holds Mrs. Dalloway specifically in such high esteem, I've not read any other Virginia Woolf, but this year I'm intending to, to crack it for Mm. more. Um, And I have them, right. I have to the lighthouse, the waves, Orlando and a room of one's own. Do you have a suggestion of like, all right, you've read Mrs. Dalloway. You liked it. Where do you go next? In, I mean, there's a you know there's a canonical progression, which is unless I'm completely confused, the order in which she wrote them. Um, well, she tended to over, to alternate, um, you know, big fat tomes with small playful tomes. So you have you have 
Mrs. Dalloway and, and to the lighthouse and, and the waves, but you also have Flush mm-hmm. and Orlando, which is, you know, a very playful, fun, fantastical novel. Um, but, you know, in, in, in the escalating ladder of seriousness, you're supposed to go Mrs. Dalloway and then to the lighthouse and then the waves. Uh, I'll tell you a, a thing that reflects poorly on me, which is that I never enjoyed another Wolf novel as much as I enjoyed Mrs. Dalloway. Uh, to the Lighthouse, I think, is more formally, it, it's on a bigger scale, it's more formally ambitious. Um, uh, and yet, uh, I felt, uh, I always felt, although I, I love it, it's, it's a ridiculous thing to say, it's, it's a great, great novel, which, I, which, I, which, which absolutely ravished me, but I didn't enjoy it as much as Mrs. Dalloway. I, uh, I, I felt um, a bit weighed down by it, um, whereas I sort of felt buoyed up by by. Mrs. Dalloway, uh, and I would say that even more for the waves, hmm. um, uh, yeah, which is tremendously ambitious. Uh, but somehow it's not light on its feet the way um, Mrs. Dalloway was, and maybe it's because I read it first. But I didn't fall in love with them the way I did I, with Mrs. Dalloway. I'm a little, I'm nervous about that myself. Although, if at the end of the day it's like, well, those are lovely novels, but I have Mrs. Dalloway, I feel I'm, I'm pretty okay with that. <laughs> Um, well, I, I guess that kind of moves very nicely into uh, into recommendations for the week. You know, what do you uh, what do you recommend that people check out, Drew? Uh, let's see. Um, oh, a new fantasy trilogy, the second book of which is coming out, I believe, in June. Uh, Erica Johansson's Queen of the Tearling. Mm-hmm. It's another book that feels. Similarly to the Magicians trilogy, that it is in conversation with um, the fantasy and and the canon in general. It's not even just fantasy. Mm-hmm. There's an implication in the first book that, like the Harry Potter books exist in this world, and the Narnia books exist, and that I just finished the second book, uh, Invasion of the Tearling, and it builds that out a little bit. But it's one of those things where the main character knows what she knows because she's read all of this stuff. Huh. Interesting. Um, and the world building is is tricky. I don't know if it's going to succeed. It's going to it's one of those live or die by the third book <laughs> trilogies, but what's a tearling? Yeah. It's a it's the country that they live in, uh. which is I don't know, it seems vaguely like a cross between France and England. Right. Like feudal France and feudal I don't know. <laughs> I'm assuming that that'll be explained to me at some point. It hasn't in the first two books. <laughs> uh Lev um, well, uh, there's a, a book coming out uh, very shortly. Um, it may already be out um, by Kate Atkinson called uh, A God in Ruins, which is not so much a sequel, um, but I think Atkinson calls it a companion volume to Life After Life, mm. which, uh, to my mind, was the best novel published in English in 2013. Uh, a magnificent achievement, not unwolfian, I think, in its kind of um, in, in the mode in which she writes. And, um, uh, yeah, uh, Gone in Ruins is, 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 uh, is, is about the same characters, but it's reverse angle from uh, a relatively minor character from, uh, from life after life. And it's, it's written with the same just, like, cosmic formal mastery that um, you saw in Life After Life. Um, it's a it's a beautiful and just crushingly sad book. I I'm 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 jaded and all, and I rarely cry um, when I read books. But I I cried over a, a God in Ruins. It's it's very beautiful. Christopher, well, um, if we're going to be devastating people, <laughs> um, I I mentioned 
last episode that I bought a, li uh, a Little Life by Hanya Yanagihara. And now I've read it. Um, and it it's one of those books I actually say said somewhere else that, um, you know, I actually can't recommend it because it's so melancholy and depressing and sad and devastating. And some of the most just I can't believe that she had to put herself in those moments <laughs> to write them uh, sort of plot points. Um, but it's if you're drawn to it and if you're interested in, in it, it's an incredible an incredible achievement of a novel which faints like it's a like a New York group of uh, graduates novels and then it focuses on on one of the characters this this guy Jude who's a lawyer slash mathematician and um, you follow his incredibly sad life as it's um, revealed to you piecemeal over the course of the novel and it's uh, incredible writing and um, just absolutely the most horrific things <laughs> so if you want that <laughs> that is my recommendation um and also i recommend drinking this drink that i made for um which lev is not joining us in drinking today but that's just because it's noon <laughs> uh, this is shameful admission man. um but yeah this is the this is a drink called the quentin which is a take on the moscow mule and uh, you can read our um our recipe and how I arrived at it at uh, so many damn books.com. Yeah. I'm going to have one promptly at eight o'clock tonight. Perfect. It's very good. Well, Lev, uh, thank you so much for coming here. It has been an absolute honor to get to talk to you both about your books and about Mrs. Dalloway. Yeah. I've enjoyed myself immensely. Well, we'll uh, see you next week with, or next, next time, next time with, um, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about with, uh, Laura Vandenberg about, uh, find, find me. me and, uh, some summer reading. Yeah. Stay tuned. Bye. Bye.